Good morning, church. Well, I said at the end of last week's sermon that I'd be preaching about fasting this week, and I was seriously halfway curious if we'd have diminished numbers today. Uh, as Christ, I've noticed that Christians will get out of bed to worship the Lord together. We'll show up to talk about the glory of the atonement. We will we'll love to have a conversation about different end times views. But you don't usually lead with fasting when you're describing to someone the joys of the Christian life, right? You see, by and large, fasting gets ignored in most circles, and I suspect that many Christians don't really have any experience with fasting, at least not the kind of fasting that we see Jesus talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount where we find ourselves today. Would you open with me to Matthew chapter 6? We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 18 this morning. Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. This is immediately following Jesus teaching us about prayer in the Lord's Prayer. And these are the words of Jesus. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So we're over halfway through with the Sermon on the Mount, and it might be helpful at this point if we do a mid-trip check of our map, see where we are. Where have we been? Where do we find ourselves today in relation to where we've been? And then where are we going from here? Because the, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just a, a random collection of sayings of Jesus. It's, it's a sermon. It's the most famous sermon in the world for good reason. It's a masterful sermon, and it's the sermon that Jesus preached um, and is most remembered in his ministry. The key to understanding it, though, for as popular as it is, the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is lost on many people, if not most, because they think that what Jesus is doing here is giving us a bunch of uh, good advice on how to live a good life. But that's not what he's doing at all. The key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is to look at the preacher. It's to look at Jesus himself. He is the key to unlocking everything in the Sermon on the Mount because he is the king of the kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount is our king showing us what it means to live as his people in that kingdom. And if you look back to the beginning of chapter 5, where the Sermon on the Mount begins, you'll see that opening section that we've been through, the Beatitudes. It's in the Beatitudes that we see who Jesus is talking to. He is talking not just to all people. He's not talking to all people at all. He's talking to his people, because it's only his people who are poor in spirit, who mourn over sin, who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Jesus because they don't have any of their own. It's those people who look to Christ and receive his righteousness by faith. They are the pure in heart who shall see God. If we don't understand that the Sermon on the Mount is for believers, we'll miss it altogether. Because nobody can live the kind of life that we see in the Sermon on the Mount apart from the grace of God in Christ, apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus says that these people, as we get down to verses 13 through 16, he says that his people live as salt in the world, preserving what is good and true and beautiful. They are the light of the world who show the gospel of Jesus. And then in the rest of chapter 5, he takes very familiar passages from the Old Testament law, and he shows what they're really about. 
he clears away a lot of the stuff that had um, gotten tacked on by the Pharisees of his day and shows us basically what does it really mean according to God's word to love your neighbor as yourself. And then in chapter 6, what he's doing is he's, he's transitioning our attention from our relationship to others to now how do we express our love for God in our relationship with him. And then in chapter 7, as we'll see in months to come, he really emphasizes that it really does matter that we, as his people, obey what he says. That's the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount at a, at a high-level overview. And so we find ourselves today right in the middle of it, right in the middle of this chapter 6, where Jesus is focusing on how do we express our love for our Father in heaven. And we, we, we just finished an in-depth look at the Lord's Prayer, which means that a major part of our love to God is the relationship that we have to him expressed in prayer. But the, the teaching on prayer doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It doesn't happen in a vacuum. The, the key verse that really gets us from the beginning of chapter 6 through the Lord's Prayer and through the section on fasting that we're in today, the key verse to understand that is verse 1. Go ahead and look there with me. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Right, so in chapter 5, Jesus clears up a lot of gunk that the religious leaders of the day had added to God's pure law. And he showed the true meaning behind a number of the things that God spoke in his law. And that was important as Jesus teaches his people how to honor what God really says in his word. And then Jesus makes this radical statement that really would have troubled his disciples. He said, unless your righteousness is exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. They would have been shocked because how in the world do you live more righteously than the most righteous people, right? The people who everybody looked to as the model, kind of the untouchable great ones, the, the Olympic athletes of the spiritual life. How do you exceed their righteousness? Well, Jesus tells us in chapter 6, and he does it by a set of three contrasts. How the Pharisees express their so-called love for God, and then, in contrast, how we as his people are to express our love for God. You see, at the heart of it, so much of how the Pharisees practiced their righteousness was aimed at making themselves look good in the eyes of others. And that's why Jesus warns us in verse 1 to beware of practicing our righteousness in a way that aims to be noticed by people. Because self-focused worshipers praise themselves, even if they mask it in language about praising God. The Pharisees had perfected the art of self-focused worship. And Jesus shows us in three contrasts how we are to not do that. And so first, he takes the subject of giving to the needy, and he says, give to the needy in a God-exalting way, not in a self-exalting way that's flashy and draws attention to what you're doing. And then he says, pray in a God-focused way, not in a way that draws attention to yourself and is self-focused. And then finally, today, he teaches us to fast in a way that is God-centered, not self-centered. And that brings us to where our verses fit in. See, fasting in Scripture is always, 100% of the time, without exception, associated with prayer. And so it makes sense that Jesus would deal with fasting right after he's taught us to pray. That's what's going on. That's why it fits here. And the main idea of verses 16 through 18 that Jesus communicates is that fasting that pleases the Father is for his glory in his eyes only. 
Okay, fasting that pleases the Father is for his glory, and it's for his eyes only. For us as 21st century Americans, fasting can be a totally foreign concept, given how little we talk about it. And so let's just take Jesus' first words. And when you fast. And when you fast. And let's look at what fasting is and when it's appropriate, and why we would do that. Let's just look at that. In fact, we're going to spend the bulk of our time here because of how misunderstood and ignored fasting is. So we want to be able to put what Jesus is saying into helpful practice in our lives. And if we're going to do that, we actually have to understand what he assumes we understand, what his disciples would have understood. We need to get this idea of fasting clear in our minds and clear away some of the contemporary gunk that has latched onto it. So let's look at the what of fasting. So what is it? What is fasting? Well, I think most people know that fasting is the choice to not eat for a period of time. So when you go to the doctor for blood work, they say, okay, uh, do an overnight fast. Um, we don't want anything that you eat to mess up your, your chemistry work, so just so fast. So people fast for many reasons. Um, choosing not to eat for either a meal or maybe a longer period of time, maybe to cleanse their bodies or to lose weight or, you know, for blood work or whatever the case may be. And every religion in the world, um, all, all through history, has some form of fasting or another. So fasting is a very common thing for a variety of reasons. But when the Bible talks about fasting, specifically it has the spiritual life in view. The spiritual life in view, our relationship to the God of the Bible. And the most basic definition of fasting that we can give would be this. Fasting is the choice to abstain from food, and that sometimes might include water, for spiritual reasons, including special devotion to prayer. It always includes special devotion to prayer. So, for, so fasting is the choice to abstain from food, including water sometimes, for spiritual reasons, including special devotion to prayer. Now, biblical fasting almost always has reference to food and drink, okay, to the things that we eat and drink. Though there's one time when the Apostle Paul talks about fasting from the sexual relationship and marriage in order to be devoted to prayer for a time. So in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, he's talking to husbands and wives, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, but except for this one instruction for fasting in marriage for a time, fasting in scripture always has food in view. Okay? It always has food in view. But whether it's food or marital relations or whatever the case, fasting is always, every time, like I said, it's, it's always paired with prayer. You'll spend most of your prayer life not fasting, but you should never fast without prayer. Okay? That, that would actually negate what fasting is. Prayer is part of the definition. And so we see the prophet Daniel, for example, describing a fast and time of prayer that he was experiencing in Daniel 9. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Fasting is the choice to abstain from food for spiritual reasons, always with prayer. So if that's the what of fasting, what about the when? When might fasting be appropriate? When, is it commanded? I mean, if this is something we don't really talk about that much, 
it would be helpful to know if this is an expectation that the Lord has for us as Christians. And if so, when? When? Well, you might be interested to know that fasting is talked about in the Bible many times, and yet it's only actually commanded one time. It's only ever commanded in the entire Bible on one occasion. If you turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 23 with me, we're going to see this occasion. Leviticus 23. And in verse 26, this is the day of atonement. Perhaps the pinnacle of holy days in the life of Israel under the Old Testament Mosaic law. In verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves. And if you look at your footnote there, that means you shall fast. Okay, you shall afflict yourselves, you shall fast. Okay, and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. So you see how important fasting was there. If you didn't fast on the day of atonement, you were cut off from Israel. That's a really big deal. <laughs> okay. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. So it was a one-day fast commanded for all Israelites on the Day of Atonement, okay? Now, the Day of Atonement was that one day each year when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would sprinkle blood from a sacrifice on that Ark, and it would be the day where atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation was made for Israel with God. It was a solemn holy day, and so fasting was required for every Israelite. But the thing about the Day of Atonement in the Mosaic Law was that it actually looked forward to a different day. A day that wouldn't come once a year, but once for all. The true Day of Atonement, when Jesus would shed his blood for reconciliation of us with God at the cross. If you join me in one more place in Scripture before we get back to the Sermon on the Mount, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. So we've gone from the middle to the beginning, and now we're heading toward the end of our Bibles. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. In verse 11. So we have the high priest entering into the holy place on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. And now, Hebrews 9 verse 11, we see a contrast. We see the fulfillment of what all of that was pointing forward to when Jesus would come as our great high priest. And so it says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So we have the Day of Atonement once a year repeated, year after year after year after year, blood after blood after blood, until the time when Jesus would come as the high priest who would give us a new covenant, a better covenant, the covenant that this covenant anticipated, so that now, not once a year, but once for all, we have redemption with our God. Christ is that great high priest who's entered the Holy of Holies. He is the mediator of that new covenant. And in fact, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 8, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, now that Christ has fulfilled the law for us and brought us under the law of Christ, no longer under the law of Moses, the day of atonement fast is no longer commanded for us as Christians. And because that is the only commanded fast in Scripture, fasting is never commanded for the believer. Okay, so for those of you who are wondering, is fasting commanded? The answer is no. For you who are in Christ, it is not commanded. It is not commanded. This is a vital point to grasp, okay? Fasting is a voluntary decision that a Christian makes as they're led by the Holy Spirit to seek after God in a time of devoted prayer. It's an entirely voluntary decision that a Christian makes to seek after God in a special time of prayer and fasting, okay? Which brings us back to Matthew 6. The person might, the snarky person, and I know there are some of you out there, might say, well, okay, thank you so much. Now, since it's not commanded, why in the world are we talking about it? If it's not commanded, why does Jesus talk about it in this New Covenant Kingdom Sermon on the Mount that is so important to the Christian life? As he's talking about things that are commanded, like giving to the needy and and prayer, why does he then talk about something that is optional for the Christian? Well, the answer is that because God's people have always fasted and they always will fast until Christ comes, okay? Jesus assumes this. God's people have always fasted. They always will fast until Christ returns. In church history, you see fasting is a very common practice among the saints. There's never been a time when God's people haven't fasted. That doesn't mean that every single Christian will fast, but Jesus assumes that many of his people will fast, and so he helps us here in the Sermon on the Mount to take such a regular, normal part of the spiritual life as fasting and to see how to do it Christianly not pharisaically, because it's very easy to miss it. It's very easy to take what should be for God's glory and make it about our own. There's nothing that we're so expert at as taking good things and corrupting them for our own purposes. Do you see? And so Jesus deals with it here. Jesus is gone right now, right? He's in heaven preparing a place for us. And while he's gone, we as believers face various trials. We face different difficulties, seasons of repentance from significant sins, other challenges in our lives. And Jesus assumes that fasting may very well be a part of how we engage with our Father through those things. In fact, Jesus was asked about fasting by some folks in Mark chapter 2. Let's see what they asked him and how he answered. 
It says that now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. You see, fasting is always associated in Scripture with humbling yourself before God. It's often a sign of mourning. And when Jesus was here as the bridegroom to come and redeem his bride, his disciples rejoiced. The hope of Israel had come. This wasn't a time for mourning. This wasn't a time for fasting. This was a time for rejoicing. But their bridegroom, in redeeming his bride, would suffer and die. They mourned. He rose, they rejoiced, and then he ascended to heaven. And since then, his people have fasted. See, fasting is seen often in both the Old and New Testaments, and a lot is said about it, but you could basically boil down all the examples that we have there of when God's people fasted into about three different times when fasting is appropriate. So if we wanna know the when of fasting and when we might wanna consider it as believers, let's just keep it simple and boil it down to three main times, okay? That should cover most of what we see in scripture. And the first is this, is pleading with the Lord in a time of urgent need or spiritual struggle. Okay, pleading with the Lord in a time of urgent need or spiritual struggle. You may have noticed that sometimes in life, there's a, a crisis that we go through or a circumstance that is particularly grave, maybe a serious illness some blow to our lives or our families that shatters us. And this is what we see in the aftermath of King David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. We know that David was confronted by the prophet Nathan for his sin, and David repented. He responded by turning back to the Lord. He was forgiven, and yet there was still a consequence for his sin. The child who was born of that adulterous relationship was deathly ill. So David fasted in that time of crisis. It says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. He was fasting in that crisis, praying that the Lord would spare the child's life. And the Lord answered David. He said, no, the child was taken to heaven in his infancy, which was just, and yet it was difficult. And when God answered, David stopped fasting because his reason for fasting had ended. The crisis had passed. Now there was time of mourning. Other times in our lives, there are times of intense spiritual struggle, perhaps some kind of a spiritual blockage that we just can't get past, and it's really weighing us down in our relationship with God. We might consider fasting. We might consider that particular time of prayer devoted with fasting to help consecrate ourselves to undistracted focus on the Lord. That might be an appropriate time. Another reason we see in scripture for fasting is when there's a time of special mourning for sin, a time of repentance when we realize that we have wandered far from the Lord and he would have us back. And we signify our repentance in fasting and mourning for our sin. Usually, this isn't going to be just for the daily sins we struggle with, but for patterns of sin that we've become entrapped in, that a person becomes convicted of by the Holy Spirit. 
See, in the days of the prophet Joel, Israel was experiencing a massive locust plague. This would have had millions of hits on YouTube if they could have filmed it. It, just, it decimated the land. It left them with nothing. And that was not good, <laughs> to say the least. Not only were there no grain, uh, no grain offerings, no drink offerings, but there was no drink at all. Like, there's no wine, there's nothing left, everything's gone. And God calls on Judah to repent. The reason for the plague was to sig- signify how bad things were with Israel. And God called them to repent with fasting. It says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Fasting was going to be a a symbol of their returning to the Lord. Fasting can be a very appropriate part of repentance for sin in your life, especially seeking the Lord for his grace and helping you walk in the new life of the Spirit when you're finding it particularly unsuccessful. (laughs) Fasting can show repentance in a way that is unique. But, now this is important. If you fast in repentance for your sin, be careful to guard yourself from thinking that you are going to be forgiven because of your fasting. Okay? Do you see the sleight of hand there? Right? The enemy loves to subvert the gospel with good things. If fasting and repentance for sin is good, we have to be guarding against thinking that that good thing becomes the basis of God's forgiveness toward us. It's not the basis of God's forgiveness toward us. It can't be. The blood of Jesus, which pays for all our sins, is the basis of God's forgiveness. Fasting is simply an expression of worship and repentance based on the blood of Jesus. Do you see? So it's a declaration of repentance and a mourning for sin, but never the basis for grace. And then finally, fasting can be good when seeking the Lord's blessing in a new endeavor, or particularly a time of dedication. So seeking the Lord's blessing and dedication. You see, the first time fasting shows up in the New Testament is with Jesus, fasting for 40 days and nights in the wilderness as he's seeking his father in consecration of his public ministry, which is about to start. In the Old Testament, Moses fasted for 40 days and nights at the beginning of Israel's life as a nation under God. The first set of the Ten Commandments had gotten broken when Israel violated the covenant before they even had the Ten Commandments, and Moses threw them down and they shattered. Well, he went up on the mountain again to receive them again from the Lord, and he fasted. It was a time of consecration and seeking the Lord as Israel began their life as a nation, which it wasn't going that well so far. The great missionary enterprise of Paul began with fasting. This is what we read about the church in Antioch, that while prophets and teachers at Antioch were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Not much longer after that, we see Paul fasting again with the elders that were appointed in the churches that God had planted. And then about a hundred years after that, in the earliest record of church order that we have called the Didache, That book says that that, um, new baptizees, people who are going to come to the waters of baptism, that they and their pastors were to fast for one or two days before baptism because of how significant that was in their spiritual life. So these are the three major reasons that you might fast biblically. An urgent need or spiritual struggle, mourning for sin in repentance, 
and seeking the Lord in ministry dedication. Now, while you may find one or two instances in Scripture that aren't covered under those three headings, that seems to represent well the kinds of reasons you might find for fasting. So if you've ever wondered, when, when should I fast? That, that's it. <laughs> God doesn't leave us in the dark. Again, fasting is never commanded for Christians, and certainly no length of time is specified, okay? But Jesus assumes that many of his people will be prompted by the Holy Spirit to fast at different times and for the kind of reasons that we see in Scripture. But a quick note, okay? Quick note. The idea of irregular fast days or regular seasons of fasting and mourning isn't really part of the biblical picture of life under the New Covenant. So take, for example, the idea of Lent. Someone who observes a season of Lent isn't necessarily sinning, but it would be wrong to put Lent on somebody and say, you need to do this because it's what God expects of you, because it's not. That tradition of an extended season of mourning and fasting doesn't really reflect the reasons for fasting that we've seen in Scripture. See, if, if under the Old Covenant that anticipated Christ, there was only one day of fasting that was commanded, where do you get off with more days of fasting and mourning being put on God's people under the new covenant when we have new wine, new wineskins, a savior who has come and a joy unspeakable. It doesn't make sense, okay? Now, fasting is a personal matter between you and God and it's seen in scripture as being something unique and outside the norm. So some believers choose to fast regularly on, and perhaps maybe set aside one day a week for fasting. And that may be fine, that's your choice before the Lord. And I'm sure that believers who fast once a week on a set day are genuinely seeking God. But again, it just doesn't seem to fit with the biblical norm of what fasting is and what it's for. It's an uncommon, out-of-the-ordinary thing in our lives with special concentration for a variety of solemn reasons. Which brings us to the why of fasting. Well, why do it? Why do it? Well, fasting is done for the glory of God to seek him at specific times in a way that shows our urgent need for him. And that's why. It's for the glory of God, seeking him at specific times in a way that shows our urgent need for him. We fast because we're moved by the Holy Spirit to do so. He prompts us. He gets us in a headlock a little bit, as it were. And he says, not in audible words, but he prompts us that this might be an appropriate thing. And we look at our scriptures and we go, yeah, we have reason to do it and we follow him in it. And we fast because what we do with our bodies has a very real connection with what we do in our souls. Because friends, there's two parts of you, the physical and the spiritual. Every aspect of your existence falls under one of those two headings, the physical or the spiritual. If the problem you're experiencing isn't demonstrably physical, it is spiritual, okay? And those two are intimately related. When we communicate through choosing physical hunger for a time, what we're doing is we're communicating the hunger of our souls for the Lord's mercy and guidance and grace. That's why Christians fast. It's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. But just like everything that's done for God's glory, we can twist fasting for our own glory. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us not to do here in the Sermon on the Mount when he's describing the kind of fasting that the Pharisees had gotten into. Look at what they were doing, verse 16. It says, Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
See, the first thing that Jesus warns us against in fasting is acting unnaturally. A hypocritical fasting acts unnaturally and makes a show of fasting. It takes this very personal thing between you and God and it goes public on purpose. So Jesus contrasts our righteousness as his people with the false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. When they fasted, oftentimes they would wear shabby clothes that were torn to show others that they were really, really sorry for our sins. And so sometimes I see young women at this church walking around with jeans that have more rips than they do uh, seams. And, and I know this young woman's in a very serious spiritual condition before the Lord. She's mourning. She's mourning. Why would she, otherwise, why would she do that? The Pharisees would put ashes on their heads and, um, and not anoint their hair with oil. Because in the Middle Eastern climate, you know the jeans. Have to, and the thing is, they cost more than the whole jeans. I, didn't, I don't understand that. Lord have mercy. The tribulation's coming. In the dry Middle Eastern climate, you would anoint your head with oil because your scalp would dry out. And if you didn't put on the oil, it was obvious. Selsun blue, please. <laughs> Lots of dandruff, I don't know. And so the point is that the Pharisees would change their appearance. They wouldn't do what they would do on any other day, which is what disfigure their faces means in verse 16. They looked gloomy and dour, and they would show by their countenance they were enduring hardship for God. And so you go up to a Pharisee and say, hey, Joe, how's it going? And Joe would go, oh, oh just give me a minute. Oh, just, I'm fasting. Yeah, it's, I'm good. How, how are you? And you'd be like, uh, fine, Joe. I, oh, sorry, I got to take this call because who wants to be around that, right? And you go, oh, Joe, something's going on with Joe. You know, Joe wants you to know he's fasting, okay? Make sure you give him his gold star for the day because that's why he's doing it. That's how the Pharisees had come to fast. They were acting. That's where the word hypocrite comes from. It's from Greek play actors who masked themselves so that the, the real them wasn't visible. It was only what they put on as a facade. Fasting hypocritically acts unnaturally. And the reason of that was because hypocritical fasting focuses on self. It focuses on self. See, by the first century, the Pharisees and the scribes had a tradition of fasting every Monday and Thursday. Well, why? Why those two days? Well, they would tell you it was because those were the two days that Moses supposedly went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments the first and the second time. And so because of how holy those days were and how spiritual of a connection they had with it, they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. What they wouldn't tell you was that that was also market day. More people would come into town to go to market on Mondays and Thursdays than any other day of the week. Bigger audience. Bigger audience. You see... That gave a great opportunity to fast publicly and draw attention to yourself so that everyone would know just how holy you were. And that's why Jesus says that the hypocrites fasted as they did, so that their fasting would be seen by others. And what is the result? What is the result of that kind of fasting? Well, Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, hypocritical fasting displeases God. It displeases God. You remember how in the scripture reading, God took Israel to task for fasting in Isaiah 58? Israel knew how to say no to food, but they hadn't learned how to say yes to God. The two are not the same. The two are not the same. Their fasting was self-focused, and they devoted themselves to their own business, doing what they felt like doing, being rude 
and, and, and giving themselves over to sin, all the while thinking that God was pleased because they skipped a meal. And God says, no, that's no kind of fasting in my eyes. That kind of fasting means nothing to God. And when Christ returns, there's going to be no reward for it. You see, God in his mercy rewards us for our holiness, which he himself supplies, by the way. He rewards us for those things on the day of Christ, those things done from pure motives. But hypocritical fasting won't make it through the fires that test the motives on that day. On the other hand, Jesus tells us in verses 17 and 18 what kind of fasting the Father is after, what kind of fasting does please God. So in contrast to fasting hypocritically, we could call this fasting Christianly. Okay? This is how Christians fast, according to Jesus. Verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus tells us that if we're going to fast, we need to act naturally when we do so. So we may be devoting ourselves to special time of prayer and seeking the Lord, but we need to act naturally all along the way. Have you ever read anything in the Bible that would commend to you this idea of doing something for the sake of drawing attention to yourself? I haven't gotten to that chapter yet. Okay. Now, of course, sometimes when you're obeying God, you do get attention, whether you want it or not. The apostles got a whole lot of attention as they were going about doing good, and they got persecuted for it. Sometimes it's impossible to walk in obedience to Christ without people giving you attention, whether negative or positive. But the point is, you're not the point. It's the motive that matters. It's never for the sake of getting attention. It's always for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of obedience. So when it comes to fasting, obedient fasting acts naturally. The Pharisees let everyone know by their appearance that they were seeking God, so-called. <laughs> but God's people get dressed. They shower. They do their hair. They wash their faces. They go about their business and they sanctify their fast to the Lord between him and them alone. Why? Because fasting that pleases the Father focuses on God, not on self. It's for his glory. It focuses on God. It's for his eyes only. Remember the controlling verse of this entire section from verse 2 through verse 18. It's, it's verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. We are not the focus. God is. Matthew 6 is all about how we express our love for God as the redeemed children of his kingdom. So how much are we loving God if our expressions of love for God seeks attention for us. Let me paint you a picture of a young man about to propose. He goes to the most high-class restaurant in town at the busiest time of the busiest day. As he's pushing back his chair, he leans into it so that it scrapes extra loudly against the tiles. And then he gets down on one knee and with a flourish, he, pour, he pulls out a ring as he's looking around to make sure that everybody's watching. He opens that thing up, and he got the extra big diamond, okay? And with his eyes slowly going around the room, he professes his love for himself, I mean, for his, his lady. And he shows that, and it sparkles too, because on Friday nights they have the cool lights that shine down, right? And, and then he asks her to marry him, all while having not looked at her at all. To which she says, oh, you shouldn't have, because no, 
we have to sort out your priorities, bud. <laughs> He's obviously the center of the attention. It's supposed to be about the woman he loves and no one else. And friends, when we express our spiritual devotion hypocritically, we're doing it like that. It's not about God. Fasting isn't about fasting. It's certainly not about the person fasting. It's about God alone, and it's for his glory exclusively. God is the goal, not the secrecy, which would be one way to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Some people just think, I've got to keep this thing dead secret, and if, and if anybody finds out, God's going to, he's going to, he's not going to be pleased. Well, friends, that's to miss the point. See, we saw in Acts 13 that the, the leaders of Antioch were fasting together, which means that they knew about it. <laughs> they knew Paul was fasting. They knew Barnabas was fasting. That was fine. The motive wasn't that they would be exalted. It was that God would be exalted. Perhaps someone may learn that you're fasting on a given day. Don't fret. The point isn't that no one ever knows. The point is that you're not the point. God is. And when your fasting is done like that, God is pleased. Jesus says that that kind of fasting pleases God. How do we know? Well, because he says that the Father who sees in secret will reward you. And the Father never rewards things that don't please him. When we aim for God's glory, we, we give God pleasure. And when we fast or do any other discipline of the Christian life for the sake of elevating God and humbling ourselves, he gets the glory and we get the joy. What reward would we possibly get? Well, how about this? If God is the goal of your fasting, if you're seeking after God, God gives you himself. And in the day of Jesus, when he returns and rewards the saints for those things they have done in the body from pure motives with his help, that's going to be a great day. It's not that we fast for the reward, but we have a gracious father who lavishes it on us. Our Savior isn't here right now. The bridegroom is preparing a place for us, the bride. So fasting makes sense in a world that's filled with sin and brokenness and sorrow and urgent need. And so if fasting is something that you choose to do in your relationship with the Father, if you're led by the Spirit to do that, then seek the Lord's help all the way. Seek his help that you would not be holding on to any unrepentant sin because it doesn't really make much sense to abstain from food but not to abstain from sin. Do you see? That cancels the whole point. Make sure to guard yourself against the sins that you might be particularly tempted to when you're fasting, such as this, don't be, don't be hangry with the people in your life. Because it doesn't make much, make much sense not to eat lunch and then scream at your kids. Seek his help that it would be for his glory, that he would give you grace for pure motives, and that it would be for his eyes only, because that is the fasting that pleases the Father. Let's pray. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise and thank you that you are good. You are so good to us that your goodness is beyond searching out. We thank you that you have not left us to our own creativity in coming up with ways to seek after you, but you have given us everything we need for life and godliness through the scriptures that show us Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for teaching us how to fast in a way that pleases the Father. Thank you for coming and bringing that great day of atonement in which we know that our sins are forgiven once and for all, never to be undone. Until that day when you return for us, 
to bring us to that great marriage supper of the Lamb. Give us grace to know when to fast, how to fast, and how to encourage one another in these things and pray for one another. Help us to seek you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us and leading us, for never letting us go, but guaranteeing that the work that was begun by our Savior will be brought to completion at the day when he returns. It is for your glory that we pray these things, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.